0: Hello and welcome to episode number 298 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books. With me today is Talia Hibbert. Y'all should prepare to be seriously charmed. Talia is the author of Wanna Bet and A Girl Like Her and other books that have been receiving a lot of positive exclamation points online. She's been writing while also finishing an English degree. So we talk about what led her to writing romance, and how her great-grandmother inspired her to write what she'd been longing to write. Among the other topics we cover include challenging the status quo by telling stories, the incredible allure of heroes in pursuit, the even more incredible allure of pining heroes also in pursuit, why she writes emotionally fluent heroes, and the subversive power of writing large heroines who, quote, have the temerity to find themselves attractive, end quote. Taya also talks about writing a heroine who is on the autism spectrum and what led her to the development of that character. Her stories of what inspire her books and her characters will appeal to all of you who enjoy uh, random gift sets of superhero actors. I really enjoyed this interview and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Now I have news and things to tell you. You ready? Let's do this. If you are going to be at Romantic Times Book Lovers Convention next week, Thursday, May 17, 5.30 p.m. in Naples 4, and that would be 5.30 p.m. Pacific Time, I will be doing a live taping of this here podcast. You can join me, Elise, Amanda, Robin Bradford, and more guests to be announced. We're going to be doing inappropriate conversations, and I'm setting up a game of romance feud that promises to be really quite silly which is the best kind of game, right? Especially if you're taping it. So if you are going to be at Romantic Times, you do need to have a badge to enter this area. So I apologize that it is not open to the public, but it is open to every conference attendee. If you're going to be in Reno for Romantic Times, Thursday, 5.30 Pacific, Naples 4, come join us for a live taping of the podcast. I hope you will join us. Today's podcast is brought to you by The Unyielding by Shelley Lawrenston. New York Times and USA Today best-selling author Shelley Laurenston capitalizes on her trademark humor and kick-ass attitude in the third installment of the Call of Crows series, which features a band of tough-as-nails female warriors resurrected from the dead and the alpha males who aren't afraid to give them a taste of their own medicine. Stieg Engstrom, angriest Viking ever, has got big problems. The human Viking clans of Earth are in danger of being obliterated along with the rest of the world, and the only one who may be able to save them is a super pain-in-the-ass crow. Most people annoy Stig, but this is the one woman he really can't stand. Erin Amsel loves being a crow. Why wouldn't she? When the other Viking clans are so hilariously arrogant and humorless, she's not about to let all that come to an end. She just didn't expect to be shoulder to shoulder in battle with Stieg. Then again, he's so easy to torment and also kind of cute. With the future of the world riding on them, Stieg knows he'll have to put aside his desperate need to kiss the smirk right off of Aaron's face. They have one goal to conquer the idiots because nothing bugs Stieg more than when idiots win. If only he can keep himself from suddenly acting like one. The Unyielding by Shelley Lawrenceton is on sale now in mass market for the first time wherever books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. Each episode of this show also gets a transcript. Each transcript is compiled by Garlic Knitter. Thank you, Garlic Knitter. This week's transcript is brought to you by Brightly Burning by Alexa Dunn. Fans of Marissa Meyer and Kira Cass rejoice for this romantic retelling. Alexa Dunn's Brightly Burning is a lush and enthralling reimagining of Charlotte Bronte's classic Jane Eyre set among the stars. It will seduce and beguile you. Stella Ainsley leaves poverty behind when she quits her engineering job aboard the Stalwart to become a governess on a private ship. On the Rochester, there's no water ration, more books than one person could devour in a lifetime, and an AI who seems more friend than robot. But no one warned Stella that the ship seems to be haunted, nor that it may be involved in a conspiracy that could topple the entire interstellar fleet. Kirkus Reviews calls it, quote, a gripping examination of class, romance, and survival set in a dystopian future that feels chillingly relevant to our present times, end quote. Brightly Burning by Alexa Dunn is available wherever books are sold, and you can visit hmhteen.com to start reading. Now, I have compliments. I love this part. To Liz C., your personal coat of arms is being designed at the moment, and every one of the animals depicted represent you by looking regal and giving one another the highest of fives. And to Leslie, you are more charming than 99.9% of kittens, of puppies waking up in boxes filled with blankets, and of all the videos of tiny baby deer sneezing. Now, if you would like a compliment of your own, or you'd like to suggest questions for me to ask our upcoming podcast guests, please have a look at our podcast Patreon at patreon.com slash smartpitches. Your support means a great deal to me. It's the first place I go to take recommendation requests and to develop questions for future guests. And when you make a monthly pledge, you are helping the show continue and you're helping me commission transcripts for older episodes. I also want to thank some of the patrons personally. So to Megan, Roxanne, Melissa, Christy, and NS, thank you for supporting the podcast Patreon. I really appreciate it. Are there other ways you can support the podcast? Absolutely. Sing along if you know the words. You can leave a review wherever you listen or however you listen. You can tell a friend. You can subscribe. But if I'm in your eardrums right now, thank you. I really appreciate that. I will have information at the end of the podcast as to what this music is, and I will also be telling you what's up next week on the site, plus I have a terrible joke because that's how I roll, and I also have links to all of the books that we mentioned in this episode. There are several, and of course, I would never leave you without book links. That would be a terrible thing to do. But now, without any further delay, on with the podcast.
1: Hi, I am Talia Hibbert. I'm a black British romance writer, a soon-to-be English graduate, an over-emotional geek, all that good stuff.
0: Excellent. So you're supposed you're soon to be an English
1: graduate? Yes. I um I graduate in July, supposing I actually manage to graduate, which is looking questionable, but we live in hope.
0: <laughs> so is this your undergraduate?
1: Yes. Um, Congratulations!
0: That's brilliant. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so, have you been writing romance and matriculating an English degree at the same time?
1: Oh yes, yes I have, oh. which was probably not my smartest idea, but um. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh that's kind of a lot of work. Um, maybe. I mean, because this was my final year of university, and before I started studying English, I was studying law. And that was a lot, a lot oh, of work. Just a bit, yeah. So when I moved on to the English degree, I was at a point where I was kind of like, really? This is all we have to do? I have to switch this <laughs> <laughs> This is easy. No problem. I got this. <laughs> so um, I don't feel like it was a huge thing. I just had to schedule myself, otherwise I'd get carried away.
0: So what made you switch from law to English?
1: Well, when I, um, I always kind of planned on, well, actually, it was never certain that I would go to university at all. Um, But then when I ended up going, I thought that if I was going to spend that much money, I needed to get a very sensible degree and do a very sensible job that would make lots of money back. So law. Um, And I did enjoy law. But then I suppose the experience of studying it ironically gave me the confidence to go for what I actually wanted, which was to study English.
0: That is freaking awesome. (laughs)
1: Thanks.
0: (laughs) I mean, not a lot of people, myself included, can figure out, oh, oh, I actually want to go do this over here um, and, and make that change. That's, that's quite a difficult thing
1: to do. Oh, thank you. It was, um, It was a bit nerve-wracking when I told my mum, who is very sensible, that I was. (laughs) I'm doing English now. Surprise! And she was like, "Oh, I see."
0: (laughs) Isn't it horrible how your mother can reduce your like reduce you to a tiny, tiny, tiny feeling with three (laughs) words?
1: Yes, just the tone. I was like, "Right, well, I'll leave you alone now."
0: So somewhere between law and then switching to English, you were like, and I'll also become an author. How did that happen? What led you to writing romance?
1: Well, I've always wanted to be a writer, or I should probably say I've always been a writer because I've written things always. Like most writers, I read a lot as well. And romance has always been my favorite genre. But it never really occurred to me that I could write romance, maybe because I admired it so much that I felt that it was beyond me. So whenever I did attempt to write, say, a novel, I'd choose a different genre, still one I liked, but one that wasn't my favourite. And I would just never finish it, I suppose, because I wasn't completely into it. Um, And then in the summer of 2017, it became clear that my great grandmother was going to pass away. So I was thinking about her a lot that summer. And every time I sat down to write something, I could kind of hear her saying, why don't you stop fucking around and write <laughs> what you actually want to write? <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> And um, I suppose she was a very inspirational woman in terms of taking what you want and working towards your dreams. And she thoroughly approved of women being scandalous. She liked to swear and drink and go out with inappropriate men, and she was yeah. Yeah. And she wore bright blue eyeshadow until she was 89. And I always felt like all those things were a form of resistance and romance felt the same way to me. And I suppose ultimately I started writing romance because I wanted to be brave like her.
0: That's really cool. That is really, (laughs) really cool. I have spoken to I have interviewed a lot of authors and almost to, I think everyone has said either I loved the genre and I challenged myself, all right, I bet you can do this. Either because they read a book that they didn't like and wanted to do better than the book that they didn't enjoy, or they sort of aspired to writing it. Like, okay, maybe I can do this too. Maybe I can do this too. And it's really scary to actually sit down and do it, isn't it? Yes. So scary.
1: So what was your first book that you wrote? My first book was, um, oh, well, that depends. I kind of, I like to ease myself into things. So I thought I'll start with a short story and then I'll write a novella and then I'll write a shorter novel. And it kind of happens <laughs> like that. <laughs> so You're clearly a law student. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really planned it all out. And um, so I suppose the first book I wrote was a novella, which I published, and is still available, called Operation Atonement, Um, and it was about 30,000 words, and I remember when I was writing it, I was like, this is so long and stressful, and I don't (laughs) know how how am I going to finish this, and then now I couldn't write a book that short. If I tried, I don't think.
0: (laughs) So what led you to self-publishing? Did you always want to self-publish?
1: Um, Not exactly. When I was younger and I wanted to be a writer, I was like, well, I'll send my manuscript to Penguin and they'll give me lots of money and publish me all around the world and it's going to be great. Mm. Um, But then as I got older and I was reading more books, I noticed that none of the characters ever looked like me or the people around me. The devil you (laughs) say. (laughs) And I kind of had a, hmm, why is this moment? And um, as I got older, essentially, I became aware of the reality in terms of any industry, not just publishing. If you want to tell a story that isn't supportive of the mainstream status quo, then chances are you're going to have trouble doing it the traditional way. So that is what drove me to self-publishing. That makes
0: perfect sense. Now, your latest book is Wanna Bet. Can you tell me about it? This is, um, I believe this was described as friends to lovers with pining, a whole lot of pining. Is that right?
1: Yes. I love a pining hero. Oh my gosh, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. The more I write, the more I realize that a hero in pursuit is my personal catnip. So I'm putting it
0: everywhere. And I've also noticed in your books that there's not only a hero in pursuit who is pining, but you, the thing I appreciate very much about your writing is that for the most part, I think in every case that I've read, you write emotionally fluent heroes. They're not mad that they have a feel and they don't like it. They're, <laughs> they're emotionally fluent and aware that feelings are normal. And that is so freaking sexy.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you said that, because I know that maybe the archetypal hero is frankly, emotionally stunted. And I know yes, that, that they're very, very emotionally humor. constipated. Hmm. But I, I don't find that sexy. I find it irritating because if, yes. I'm trying to, like, if we're trying to talk and do anything interesting or have any fun, no one wants to be doing that with like a brick wall. There needs to be some kind of openness to humanity. Yes.
0: For and it rom- can't be just yeah. the heroine's job either. It can't be the heroine's responsibility to teach the hero how to have a feel and manage it.
1: Yeah, a romance can't just be like a. A manuscript of months of emotional labor on the part of the heroine that's not romantic to me. <laughs> it's exhausting and it's not
0: fun. Exactly. <laughs> so in Wanna Bet, you have an emotionally fluent
1: pining hero with friends to lovers. Can you tell me about your book? Yes, so it's out on Saturday, the twenty-first of April, and it's a standalone novel about two people, a black heroine and a South Asian hero who have been best friends for seven years, they met at university. And throughout the story, we see like flashbacks to key points in their relationship. And she avoids romance like the plague, which he knows, but he has been in love with her since they met. And then she has to move into his flat for a month or so. And, um, you know, things happen. And it's all very exciting.
0: So, you have a pining hero, friends to lovers, and forced proximity. Well
1: played. Yes. That is an
0: excellent, that's a catnip trifecta right there.
1: Those are definitely my favorite things.
0: <laughs> now, I've seen a lot of praise, especially from Corey Alexander on Twitter and other readers, talking about your portrayal of a large heroine. More than one reader has called this their favorite fat representation. Can you tell me about your process, like developing this story? What led you into this story? What was your uh, entry point? Which is a really cagey way of saying, where do you get your ideas? (laughs) (laughs) Except really, actually, I'm very curious. What led you into this story and how did you develop this heroine?
1: Well, hmm. in terms of where I get my ideas I always start with characters and then I shift around situations to suit what I want to happen with the characters. So all of my ideas are very much character driven. And Jasmine, the heroine of Wanna Bet, the whole story was kind of a result of me trying to disrupt the status quo in some way, which is something that I try to do with all of my books. And with this one, I feel that very often, especially for women and feminine people or those who are read as women, love always comes down to whether or not they deserve it. You know, are they smart enough, pretty enough, thin enough? And I feel that Jasmine is the kind of woman who people would say doesn't deserve love because she pushes people away and she can make bad decisions and she doesn't meet particular beauty standards, but she still has the temerity to consider herself attractive. And I kind of wanted to give her a hero and a story that show you don't have to meet anyone else's standards to be completely and totally loved.
0: I love that, that she has the temerity to find herself attractive, because that is, (laughs) I think, unfortunately, a universal almost reaction to women of size who embrace what they look like and are happy with themselves. Like, how dare you? You don't fit this this standard of, of appearance. How dare you? And that outrage, that sort of sense of offense is layered on to women in so many different ways. Mm, definitely. So where did you start with the hero for this for this book, for Want to Bet?
1: Well, it's because I kind of start with characters, sometimes I think of a character and I don't know who to put them with. Um, and sometimes I try to put them with other characters I have hanging around, but then I'm like, no, that doesn't work. So I save them for later. Um, so I actually had Rahul, the hero of Wanna Bet in my head for, I think it's three or four months before I started writing this story. And I tried to put him with a different heroine and he was like, no, thank you. And I was like, okay, you sit tight. We'll find someone for you. (laughs) 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 So I put him in a corner And then when I kind of came up with Jasmine, I was like, oh, this is perfect because he likes to look after people and he's a very good boy, but he's also very kind of focused on what he wants. And I felt like it was a good combination.
0: So do the characters just sort of show up in your brain and start talking to you? Or do you think about a particular trait and then build a character around it?
1: You know, when I was younger, before I started writing, I used to read lots of author interviews and they'd be like, oh, this character just won't stop talking to me. And I'd be like, wow, what a pretentious thing to say. That is- <laughs> <laughs> That's not how it happens, but it totally is how it happens. And now I'm glad.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> but I also think that, when you can hear a character in your mind, whether as a reader or a writer, I think when you can hear a character and they have a distinct voice and a way of speaking and a way of, of presenting themselves and their view of the world, it makes the experience of reading about them so much richer. So I, even though it does sound really pretentious or maybe a little scary, like I have all <laughs> yeah. these people talking to me in my head. Um, <laughs> are you a writer or do we need to talk to an emergency medical professional? Like what's <laughs> happening here? That that, that becomes a, a very a strength in in a writing in a writing brain. Have you noticed that your um, process has changed as you've written more books? What
1: is your process like? Oh, it's definitely changed. Um, I feel that in the beginning, I was definitely fumbling along, and because I do kind of prioritize the characters, I was letting them kind of drag me off on complicated stories. And then we'd kind of get to a certain point and I'd be like, what's going on? Why are we here? How did we get here? What do I do now? I don't know. Whereas now I do try and corral them a little bit. And I kind of try and think in terms of what they need to happen. It's like remembering that I am actually the god of their existence.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You're in charge here, people.
1: (laughs) I've just got to lay down the law instead of letting them do whatever they want. I think that's the main difference. So sometimes when I'm writing things, often, in fact, I kind of start with the characters, but they're in a certain scenario, like they have this job or they have this hobby. And then as I write it and I get to know them more and I figure out what they need, I'll completely change their job. I'll change where they are. I'll change how they meet. So I have like three drafts of every story on my hard drive with all the people in completely different situations until I find the right one. About how long do you think it takes you to write a book?
0: Have you measured that time? Yes. It takes me about four weeks to write a book. Um, That is very fast. My goodness. Nice. (laughs) Nice. I'm a very fast writer when it comes to like nonfiction reviews. I'm very fast because it's a muscle that's pretty strong. So I completely understand that when you've worked on strengthening those muscles, you can write quickly. But four weeks is really awesome and excellent for readers. I'm sure readers appreciate that.
1: <laughs> yes, I think they do. I, um, I, I have been releasing a book a month since I started publishing. And I have had people say, like, I love how I know that your next book is going to come out very soon. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned
0: that when you have these characters in your your writing, they try to lead you off into complicated directions. But it seems that you want to focus on very simple tropes like friends to lovers, pining hero, forced proximity, go. What are some of your favorite essential romance stories that that you like to explore in keeping it simple and direct?
1: Um, I think, well, the things that I always return to are mostly the things that you've just mentioned, like friends to lovers and forced proximity and things like that. And the more I write, the more I'm realizing that what I actually want is to minimize, not minimize external factors, but to put it simply, I kind of want to minimize plot and just have these long books of emotional happenings. And I feel like I've definitely done that more with my recent releases and it hasn't gone horribly wrong. So we'll see how that goes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that
0: if you're focusing on characters that are friends to lovers, Mm. you have a lot of backstory to, to reveal in dialogue because these are people who know each other well and can sort of speak for themselves.
1: Yes, that's why I love friends to lovers, but I actually love any situation where they've known each other before the story begins. And um, I haven't explored many other tropes like that yet. But one thing that I really am eager to write is, well, two things actually. An enemies to lovers book where they were previously mortal enemies, but then they meet again and they somehow fall in love. And then um, a second chance romance where they kind of were together. Maybe they were even married, but then their marriage completely broke down. Yet somehow they come back to each other and make it work. I'm not sure.
0: I imagine that people who love your books will be listening to this and going, yes, please. Yes, please. Yes, please. Yes, (laughs) "Yes, that too. Write that. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Okay. When's it going to be out? Is it going to be out tomorrow? (laughs) 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 Now, in A Girl Like Her, you wrote an autistic heroine who is extremely aware of herself and she has some serious walls up against the rest of the world. And what I think of as the squishiest marshmallow interior hero, who is very decent (laughs) and succeeding marvelously at being a decent human being. What brought you to writing that story? Where did you start with that one?
1: Oh my God, this answer is the one that will make me sound like a complete weirdo. So a couple of weeks- promise
0: you it won't.
1: (laughs) So a couple of weeks before I started A Girl Like Her, I saw a GIF on Twitter And it was, like, this new dark and gritty version of Captain America that they're doing with, like, the beard and the long hair. Right. I saw it, and I had this vision of a guy like that who looks kind of terrifying, but is actually really wholesome and just a nice boy. And he's, you know, drinking tea with you, and then he finishes his tea, and he's like, do you want, like, yours? Like, do you want some more tea? And he's like, yes, please. So you take his tea, but then your hands touch, and you're like, wow. Wow we should do it. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm right along with you. Keep going. Yeah, right. This makes sense. <laughs> so I actually tweeted something along those lines and all of my followers were like, wow, can you write that? <laughs> <laughs> Why, well, yes. Yes, I can. <laughs> well, at first I was kind of like, guys, I'm just being thirsty. Like, please. <laughs> but then around that time, I was writing a book that, I was just so sick of it was absolutely killing me and one evening I decided to put it away and write something fun um so I wrote about this librarian walking home from work and she walks really quickly because she knows that if she gets to a certain place at a certain time she'll bump into her neighbor who she has this huge crush on and the neighbor was the Captain America inspired guy so I wrote this scene where they were like walking together and the heroine was so into him, that she couldn't kind of bear to show it. And then once I finished the scene, I was kind of like, I think these characters are important. Like I want to write, I want to write a girl like her. So I did. What led you to her being autistic? Oh, well, actually that was probably, um, hmm. I don't want to say that it was shameless self-insertion since I am autistic, but it A little bit was, but mainly because as an autistic woman, especially an autistic black woman, I just kind of take for granted or took for granted that I was never going to read a book with a heroine who was like me ever. And then I kind of thought, well, I'm a writer now, so I could just make one. Hell yeah. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) I, I completely
0: understand that from my own perspective. I complained – I have a rule where I'm not allowed to complain about something three times. Um, if I complain about something three times, then I either have to shut up or do something to change it. And I'm Jewish and I got really frustrated with the sheer volume of Christmas romances that arrive in on the porch in like October. And I was like, you know what? Uh, I don't understand why Hanukkah is not a romance holiday. There's eight days. There's candlelight. We eat jelly donuts. This is really romantic. What the hell? <laughs> So I wrote a Hanukkah romance and was I like, love that. I'm going to say, oh, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to write one. If there isn't one, I'm going to write it. So on the, on the one hand, like I kind of want to cry listening to your story. And on the other hand, I'm like, fuck, yeah, you write one. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> yes. I know that feeling of, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to do it. Nobody's yes, stopping.
1: I'm going to take care of this. I love your rule of like complaining about things three times and you have to handle it. But, yes. Yeah.
0: Either you, if you complain about something three times, either you have to stop complaining about it or you have to do something about it. Even if it's not successful, just observing this pisses me off doesn't accomplish anything. And in the end, I'm very proud of what I wrote. And it sounds like you're very proud of what you wrote as well.
1: Yeah, I suppose I am because. Even though it started from this idea of representation that I'd been missing, I didn't actually write, you know, myself. It is a very different character. I was going to say, I Um, don't sense that you have those
0: walls and like really don't want to talk to anybody. (laughs) No.
1: (laughs) So I kind of, um, I really wanted to represent autism in general. And I wanted to do that faithfully because I'm also conscious that a lot of the time when we do get autistic characters, they're written by people who aren't autistic, who have very strange ideas of how autism works and what autistic individuals are uniformly like. And I was, was going to like say that. there's
0: only one type of autism that I've read in books. It's the same type over and over. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and it's it's not completely accurate or very humanized or just anything that I want to recreate. So I I think I'm proud of the fact that I managed to put some positive representation out in the world.
0: I think that's something definitely to be proud of, because I can see from the response to that book when I was doing research how much that representation meant to people who were like, finally, it's not this one type of character that has nothing to do with my reality as a person with autism. Yeah, that made me happy. Isn't that a lovely feeling? It's the best feeling. (laughs) Does um, Does your having autism influence your writing or your process that you've noticed?
1: Um, yes, although I'm getting better at it now. But um, I worried, maybe it wasn't a concrete thing so much as a paranoia that I had. But when I started writing, I worried that my portrayal of people's thoughts and perceptions of the world might be influenced by my perception of the world, which I know is fundamentally different to that of people who aren't autistic. So I would kind of show it to say my boyfriend who is on the autistic spectrum. So I don't feel weird asking him about it, but he's much better at pretending to be neurotypical than I am. And I'd show him and be like, does this seem weird to you? (laughs) And (laughs) He was like, stop asking. Like, it's your book. You can just make it however you want. And I was like, oh, that is a good point. Oh, I like him. (laughs) So I think that was actually more something that I was conscious of at the beginning that I've let go of now, but it did influence me at first.
0: May I ask how you see the world and process the world is different from someone who is neurotypical?
1: Hmm. Let me think about that. Um, It's a very difficult
0: question, and it might be a bit of an unfair question. So if it is, please feel free to tell me.
1: I think it's an interesting question and one that I. I've never really articulated it because it's something that you have to kind of think about subconsciously. Mostly in social situations, I have to try and mirror other people. um, Because if I don't, I have a lot of problems with people being uh, scared of me, actually. Um, Because apparently, everything that I say and do seems extremely angry. Um, (laughs) What? So yes. And yeah, so sometimes people kind of, well, I suppose people ask me things, but I don't understand what they want me to say or why they're asking it or what the purpose of the interaction is. So I just kind of respond as best I can. But then I later realized that I completely misinterpreted what was supposed to happen there. And it all came off very... I don't know. Oh, now I've dropped my phone. It all came very. <laughs> <out there, yeah. laughs> mm, I don't like. I don't like group interactions. There are so many potential pitfalls. Oh dear. Um, I think one of the most interesting things, from my perspective, is the fact that people can process so much sensory information at once that I could never do. Um, like people can. People can talk on the phone and talk to other people at the same time or understand things or see things or hear things. And I can't do that. If I have one kind of stream of information coming at me, everything else needs to go away or I get very stressed out.
0: So too much input overwhelms your brain.
1: Definitely. But I suppose the flip side of that is that I am able to focus probably an unusual amount on things. And, um, and I can literally kind of cut off all other things around me.
0: That's a very handy skill in a writer. Mm, yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Another thing
0: I've noticed in your Twitter feed, and I'm wondering if this is also part of how you view the world. You observe the genre and its character tropes and the books and the things that characters are doing. And you pick out patterns in behavior very quickly. For example, yesterday you tweeted that you noticed – Heroines who are mistreated or betrayed frequently internalize, like, I suck, I am this problem. Whereas heroes who are mistreated and betrayed project their betrayer's qualities on everyone else. I can never love again because this one person was horrible and she was blonde, so all blonde women are evil. <laughs> that Okay, A, that's totally true. And uh, also, I think, very indicative of how women are taught to assume responsibility and masculinity is taught to project responsibility. What led you to notice that particular pattern? What other patterns have you noticed? Is that part
1: of how you see the world as well? I do really like to kind of explore things and rip them apart, especially in popular culture and societal norms and things like that. And I suppose I have had a lot of people, mostly on Twitter, angrily respond, like, why do you overthink everything?
0: Because it's
1: fun. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. was it it so is. fun. Like, why would you not? <laughs> exactly. You don't understand that I'm enjoying myself here. Like,
0: This is really is
1: Believe me, I understand completely what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> so I do think that is kind of why I noticed the patterns. And I think also one of the things that made me so conscious of these patterns is I obviously know about the hallmarks of different sorts of romance, because I've read so much of it. But then I, I sit down to write something, and I can see in my head how it should typically go. So for example, I'm writing a hero at the minute who was treated badly by a woman, a romantic partner in his past, and I'm kind of dealing with the effects of that. And I could see in my head that typically he was supposed to be in a position of, I don't trust women anymore. Like, sometimes those heroes even veer into misogynistic territory where they're like, all women are gold-digging sluts because Rebecca from five years ago didn't (laughs) love me. (laughs) It's so true and it's so toxic, yes. And I'm kind of like, could you pull yourself together for five minutes? Like, I don't want to write that kind of hero because I hate him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I'm writing my hero and his response to that was to kind of think that actually that there was something wrong with himself. And he kind of knows consciously that there's nothing wrong with him. But he does have this insecurity from that incident. And when I was writing it, I was thinking, because I'm always conscious of this sort of thing when I'm writing it, I was thinking like people are going to say, oh my God, this hero is too feminine. And I was like, why is this insecurity from a totally valid event that could lead to an insecurity going to be treated as something in him that's wrong? Because he's a guy. That's a very big question. Well, I think that um, it's actually funny because I was reading your book yesterday that you wrote with Candy Tan called Beyond Heaving Bosoms. Oh my gosh, you're reading my book? Thank you. That's so cool. <laughs> well, I actually didn't know it was your book when I ordered it and then it arrived and I was like, Sarah Wendell, is that the same Sarah Wendell that I know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> So that was a cool moment. Um, but when I was reading the section on heroes, I was kind of like, wow, yes, like speak the truth. because <laughs> <laughs> It focuses so much on like the, um, the standards of masculinity that they are expected to uphold. Yes. And it just honestly becomes so toxic and so exhausting and so counterproductive in a genre that is supposed to be about like emotions. Yes, thank and- you they're so hemmed in with all these gendered standards and things so that is something that I try to go against when I'm writing
0: which would probably be why um I really enjoy your heroes and their squishy marshmallow interiors and their emotional fluency um Elise and I are working on a post about boner-led heroes who are led around by their boners (laughs) Like it's some sort of a magnetic like draw like that he has a boner and he must do what his boner says and go where his boner tells him to go because he's ruled by his boner. And I'm like, what about a guy who's like normally emotionally fluent and uh, open to new experiences and recognizes that sometimes those experiences lead you to getting hurt? Like why it's both toxic and it's also this incredible fragility.
1: Mm. Yes, it's (laughs) <laughs> I'm just still laughing so much about the boner led <laughs> Yeah, we're
0: we're editing that. It was a whole conversation. We're editing it for the for the website to come. But basically, if it's like a it's like a divining rod that you would use to find water yeah. in the desert. Only for him, it's like <laughs> I sense that she is submissive. My boner tells me so. <laughs> like, no, that's oh not God. how they
1: work. I'm really sure that that's not how they work. <laughs> I just, sometimes it is disturbing how much certain heroes kind of think, well, I, I long for her with my arousal. So therefore, and I'm like, no, you can't base real world interactions on like your sex drive. That's not how we operate as human beings. That doesn't, it's not going to go anywhere good.
0: I feel like, I feel like I'm at a concert and I'm just holding a lighter like, yes, yes.
1: (laughs) Please go on. I'm sorry I interrupted. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) It just very much frustrates me when we have these heroes who in real life wouldn't get anything out of anyone. They wouldn't have good jobs because they don't know how to interact like normal human beings. They wouldn't have any friends because they don't know how to treat people. They definitely (laughs) wouldn't have relationships because... (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. They just wouldn't function in the real world, but in some of these books they're like, oh, he's running a multi-million dollar corporation. And I'm like, oh, Are you sure? He doesn't seem like Do you have him confused with someone else? He doesn't <laughs> I'm crying laughing over here.
0: It's so true. My favorite is when the hero's dick twitches. <laughs> like several years ago like, when twitter was a something. twitter was a slightly different place it was a little bit smaller i was like all right listen i need i need to know please ask your male partners and friends do their dicks actually twitch like if they're sort of like if they're mildly interested in something does their does their penis actually sort of like shiver does it get a little shimmy does it actually twitch <laughs> and so <laughs> The next morning, I had all these people saying, my husband, my boyfriend, my friend, they're all so disturbed that I've asked this question because it's just not a thing that happens. But in romances, their dicks are like, they just do a little dance when something
1: happens. And they're always hard. They're going about their daily business constantly aroused. And I don't know how they maintain it. It doesn't make like conducive to daily life. I don't. <laughs> so true! <laughs> oh my gosh so do you have
0: I'm crying do you have a favorite hero that you've written of your books
1: oh that's a difficult one it's very Ooh. hard to ask
0: a writer which is your favorite because well they, they they were all your favorites at one point or another while you were writing them
1: exactly, yes um well I actually think that Isaac from Undone by the Excon which is probably one of my like least popular books. I feel like not many people have read it, but he's my favourite hero. How come? Well, he's very... I don't know. hes very um, He's very quiet. I don't want to say he's brooding exactly, because he's not really like that, but he's very quiet and thoughtful, and he internalises a lot. And also probably because he's a writer, so I kind of identify with... A lot of his thoughts about writing. I suppose I feel like we could have a good long chat.
0: That's really interesting. I love a good uh, cerebral thinking character of any gender. Like I, I, I lo- a lot of character who's really interested in in their own thoughts and in thinking about how they view the world. And introspective mm. characters. That's what I like. That's the word I was looking at Yeah, I love a good introspective character because it means that there's something interesting in their own interior landscape.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: So do you design your own covers? They are amazing.
1: Oh, gosh, no. Thank you so much. But I have zero artistic talent to speak of. I am a genuine train wreck. Actually, art is probably one of the few things I will say I am 100% terrible at. All of my covers were designed by Cosmic Letters and... She's amazing. Like she doesn't get too annoyed when I mess her around 5,000 times per cover (laughs) because I can't even like, I have no idea what I even want the cover to look at, look like my brain is not visual at all. So she has to make me 20 different versions of a cover and then I'll be like, Oh, maybe that one. I see it now that, and then we finally get there. It's a long and painful process.
0: So your uh, your your Twitter avatar, you have some, mm-hmm. that is you, right? Yes, that's. Me. So you have some outstanding <laughs> eyeshadow on. Did you not do that? Oh, this is the thing people always ask me. Yes, I did that. I'm a makeup artist. Okay, so listen, that's uh, artistic talent. I don't want to scare you <laughs> or anything, but that would be art, and it is a talent that you have. So it may not be book covers, but damn, your eyeshadow skills are quite on point. My gosh
1: thank you um I actually started doing makeup because I knew that I was bad at art and I hate being bad at things so I was searching for an artistic thing that I could be good at (laughs) and it ended up being makeup so do you do makeup for other people as well yes I do although not so much at the minute because I'm so busy but um actually before I started writing I was a freelance makeup artist like that was my job um And I have a beauty blog, which is very exciting, but I've also severely neglected that because I'm writing and of my degree and everything. Um, But yeah, I do makeup for people. So you're getting your English
0: degree, you're also a makeup artist, and you're
1: writing a
0: book every four to five weeks. Um, So do you sleep? Is sleep a thing that you do at all?
1: You'd be surprised. (laughs) I actually sleep a lot. (laughs) (laughs) a significant amount possibly too much (laughs) and I firmly believe
0: there is no such thing as too much sleep when you need sleep but I'm also the bedtime commander my children will not tell their friends what their bedtime is because they're too embarrassed and yet they wake up in the morning and they feel human and
1: relaxed and calm and I'm like see
0: you can be exactly embarrassed all you want but you got enough sleep
1: exactly I remember when I was young and I was I had the earliest bedtime of anyone in my class. And it was so horrible. But my mum was like, do you want to be like everyone else? Or do you want to have a refreshed brain? Yes. I was like, mother. <laughs>
0: learning how to take care of my brain and the way that my brain is unique is something that I have really valued about my own uh, maturity as a person and learning how much sleep I need was life changing.
1: Yes, I think that you're definitely right in terms of like looking after yourself and learning what your brain needs. It's invaluable. It's very
0: true. Now, I have some questions from Elise. First, are you going to be at Romantic Times in Reno or at RWA in Denver? Are you coming over to the States?
1: Oh, gosh, probably not because I, okay, so I went to Mexico like six months ago. And it was the longest flight of my life. And my skin dried out, even though I wore two tissue masks, and I'm never repeating it. <laughs> so it might be, uh, <laughs> it will be a long while before I return to the Americas. I probably have to go at some point to Jamaica to visit family, but not
0: not yet. Okay? Not, <laughs> it, not, is, <laughs> it is very funny how the world is so small on the internet, we can connect with people instantly. Like I'm in outside dc and you are in england and we're having this perfectly normal conversation instantly <laughs> over the internet we can talk anytime on twitter with people all over the world and yet when you actually try to travel to different places
1: it takes a little while it's a big pond oh my goodness it's painful like what i couldn't believe it the first time not the first time but the first time that i went to america as an adult and i was on the plane i was like was it always this far away <laughs> <laughs> oh, <has> it- Pain? <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, we're kind of far. It's, it's a
0: problem. My other question from Elise, I mentioned, oh, I'm, I'm talking to Talia Hibbert today. She went, oh, my God, please ask if Cherry's sister will get a book.
1: So. Oh, Max, Oh, people ask me this all the time. Um, I don't want to say yes, because I have so much to write. But at the same time, I feel inevitably she probably will but um, not for a long time. Right. <laughs> so what are you working on right
0: now? How many books do you Do you write one book at a time or do you sort of have a few going at the same time?
1: Um, I write one book at a time, but I plan multiple books. And I have um, a file called Fragments where I get kind of images and scenes from stories in my head and I just write them down for when I start properly working on that story. Um, so... Currently, I'm working on... Well, currently, I am outlining the rest of the Ravenswood books, so the books that follow a girl like her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm actively working on a book that I don't want to spoil anything, but it's an enemies to lovers situation. Um... I don't think I can say anything else, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I'm also working on two second chance books and a trilogy, which is going to be kind of like vaguely related to organized crime, but not exactly. It's a long story. Oh, <laughs> so lots of books. Yay. Yes, I suppose. So.
0: <laughs> now the question I always ask is what books are you reading that you want to recommend to people?
1: Oh my goodness. You wish you hadn't asked. Okay. No, I have no, a list. never
0: regret asking this question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I have an extensive list. So anyone who follows me on Twitter will have seen me absolutely screaming the other night over Never Sweeter by Charlotte Stein. Oh my. I, oh my goodness. Everyone had been telling me to read it forever. And I had been hesitant because of the premise, because it is about like bullying. And I feel like, like most people who make a life reading and writing books, I have been bullied. Oh. And I was like, wow, this is going to be horrible. <laughs> <laughs> but then I read it and I was wrong because it was amazing. And I, oh, and now I'm reading everything she's ever written. Oh, it was amazing. Um, what else? Oh, I'm reading a lot of Beverly Jenkins right now Isn't as well. Amazing. Yes, like I follow her on Twitter and she's so lovely and I just read all her tweets and smile and love her from afar. Um, (laughs) So I'm reading Destiny's Captive at the minute or I just started it. And I think it has like a lady pirate, which is very exciting. Um, (laughs) And I was recently absolutely floored by Invitation to the Blues by Roan Parrish. That has, I think I read it a couple of weeks ago and I still just kind of find myself thinking about it deeply at random moments throughout the day where I'm like, wow, that book was so amazing. Like I've, my life has forever changed. I, everyone needs to read that.
0: Isn't it cool when your brain gets a book hangover?
1: Yes. I love it and also hate it, but love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's stressful. <laughs> um, and I've been reading an advanced copy of Lynn Turner's Pas de Deux and it's so beautiful. It's just like really, really stunning. And it's about dances. And I used to dance. And I always wondered kind of when you're reading about dance, how can anyone really capture how brilliant it is. And I feel like this book actually manages to capture the feeling of dancing. And I just I love it. I'm like, blown away. Um, I feel like I'm going to kind of rein myself in here and and cut the list off otherwise we'll be here for a very long time (laughs) well (laughs) is there anything else that you would like to mention Hmm, anything else I would like to mention I would definitely like to say how much fun it has been to come on here and do this and how much I love smart bitches like severely
0: oh you're the nicest person thank you And that brings us to the end of this interview. I want to thank Talia Hibbert for hanging out with me and talking with me about all of the different things. If you would like to find Talia, you can find her on her website at taliahibbert.com. You can find her on Twitter at Talia Hibbert, on Facebook at Author Talia Hibbert, and you can find her on Instagram at Talia Hibbert as well. And of course, I will have links to all of these places in the show notes at smartvitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. On Thursday may 17th if you're going to be at rt i hope you'll come join us for a live taping of this very podcast in naples 4 at 5 30 p.m pacific time we will be and we being elise amanda robin Bradford, and myself plus more people will be recording a live show we will be talking about rt making inappropriate comments about various things talking about books and then we're going to play romance feud and it's going to be awesomeness so please come it would be so great to have you Again, this is open to people who are in the Romantic Times convention. You must have a badge to enter the area. I apologize that it's not open to the public, but if you're going to be at RT, come join us Thursday, May 17th, 5:30 p.m. in Naples 4 at RT in Reno. I hope you can come cuz it'll be so much fun. Today's podcast is brought to you by The Unyielding by Shelley Laurenston, New York Times and USA Today best-selling author Shelley Laurenston capitalizes on her trademark humor and kick-ass attitude in the third installment of the call of crows series which features a band of tough-as-nails female warriors resurrected from the dead and the alpha males who aren't afraid to give them a taste of their own medicine stieg emstrom angriest viking ever has got big problems the human Viking clans of Earth are in danger of being obliterated along with the rest of the world, and the only one who may be able to save them is a super pain-in-the-ass crow. Most people annoy Stig, but this is the one woman he really can't stand. Erin Emsel loves being a crow. Why wouldn't she? When the other Viking clans are so hilariously arrogant and humorless, she's not about to let all of that come to an end. She just didn't expect to be shoulder-to-shoulder in battle with Stieg. Then again, he's so easy to torment, and also kind of cute. With the future of the world riding on them, Stieg knows that he'll have to put aside his desperate need to kiss the smirk right off Aaron's face. They have one goal, to conquer the idiots, because nothing bugs Stieg more than when idiots win, if only he can keep himself from suddenly acting like one. The Unyielding by Shelley Laurenston is on sale now in mass market for the first time wherever books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. Each episode of this here podcast receives a transcript which is hand compiled by Garlic Knitter. Thank you, Garlic Knitter. This week's transcript is being brought to you by Brightly Burning by Alexa Dunn. Fans of Marissa Mayer and Kira Cass rejoice for this romantic retelling. Alexa Dunn's Brightly Burning is a lush and enthralling reimagining of Charlotte Bronte's classic Jane Eyre set among the stars. It will seduce and beguile you. Stella Ainsley leaves poverty behind when she quits her engineering job aboard the Stalwart to become a governess on a private ship. On the Rochester, there's no water ration, more books than one person could devour in a lifetime, and an AI who seems more friend than robot. But no one warned Stella that the ship seems to be haunted, nor that it may be involved in a conspiracy that could topple the entire interstellar fleet. Kirkus Reviews calls it, quote, a gripping examination of class, romance, and survival set in a dystopian future that feels chillingly relevant to our present times, end quote. Brightly Burning by Alexa Dunn is available wherever books are sold. Visit hmhteen.com to start reading. If you would like to support the show, there are a number of ways to do that. You can leave a review wherever you listen. This does in fact help people find the show because it convinces the ever so snobbish algorithm to give the podcast a voucher for Allmax and show it to other potentially interested podcast listeners. I'm not actually sure if there's an Allmax for podcasts, but if there is, leaving a review is how you get that voucher. So thank you if you've done so. You can also tell a friend, subscribe. Listening each week is a massive thing, so thank you for that. And if you would like more options, please have a look at patreon.com slash bitches. The podcast Patreon community is the first place I go to suggest questions for upcoming guests and to tell them who's going to be on the show next. So if you would like some inside information and would like to be part of the Patreon community... Patreon.com slash smartpitches. And to Julia, Laura, Maria, Jean, and Stuart, thank you so much for supporting the Patreon and being part of the Patreon community. Our music is provided each week by Sassy Outwater. You can find her on Twitter at Sassy Outwater. This track is called Queens, and it is from Caravan Palace. Their two-album set with Caravan Palace and Panic is available at Amazon and iTunes, and everywhere you buy your fine, fine music. You can find Caravan Palace on their website, caravanpalace.com. Next week on the website, you know there's a website that goes with podcasts, right? I'm presuming you knew this. We are going to have one of our most popular features, Cover Snark. And we have an internal channel on our Slack for the website where we placed all of the covers that are submitted and the covers that we find Um, it is a treasure trove of heinous amazement. So each cover snark is more fun than the last one. I hope you'll hang out with us and take a look at some strange, strange things. We also have reviews and a rec league. And most of all, Elise, Amanda, and I will be at Romantic Times Book Lovers Convention in Reno. We'll be posting pictures and videos while we're there. So stay tuned for that. And if you're going to be there and you see us, please grab one of us to say hi, because we would love to meet you. I have links to all of the books we talked about and the different things that we mentioned during the show. But as always, I end with a terrible joke. Are you ready for a terrible joke? I have a terrible joke. All right. You ready? Why is dark spelled with a K and not a C? Give up. Why is dark spelled with a K and not a C? Because you can't see in the dark. I told that one to my older son, and he just gave me the greatest look of unimpressed horror. Like, oh, God, I'm related to you. It was amazing. That joke comes from WSL 22. Thank you, WSL 22. You can't see in the dark. (laughs) So on behalf of Talia Hibbert and everyone here, we wish you the very best of reading. Hope to see you here next week for our next podcast. Have a great weekend.